If you have a Bible, you can open it to Ephesians chapter 2, and I'm going to read right here at the beginning the first three verses. Ephesians 2, chapter, or chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Let me just pray here at the beginning. Oh God, we, every single one of us in this room, need to have our eyes opened. There's not a text more clear in all of Scripture that indicates we are incapable of opening our own eyes. It's a miracle. And you have to do it. Do that for us here this morning. Open our eyes to your word. Amen. Well, after nine weeks, we've gotten through three sentences. So <laughs> we are finally in chapter two, right? Can I get an amen? Amen. Uh, if you're new to Sayleville, that is how we like to do it. We do like to go verse by verse, and sometimes it just takes a little bit longer than usual. But we're happy we are finally in chapter 2. And uh, as you can tell, the verses I just read, Paul's changed his tone a little bit, right? He, he was talking about all of the glorious gifts that a Christian has in Christ, but now Paul turns and he just makes this about this sharp turn, and he finds it extremely urgent that this church in Ephesus understands and knows and sees the sinful depravity of humanity. Well, why has he got to do that? Right? I mean, why? Come on, Paul. Let's just stay with the fluff. Just give us heaven. Just let's talk about the good things in life. But he doesn't do that. Why does he? Why? Why, Paul? Well, I'll tell you why. Paul goes to this topic the dark topic of human depravity right here in this letter after he just got done explaining all of the gifts that we had lined up here. He did that because you are unable to worship your Savior until you weep over your sins. Or to put it another way, there must be in the hearts and minds of every human, there must be an offensive awakening to your horrifying reality as a sinner in order to rejoice in what Jesus has done for you on the cross. Um, I remember as a boy being shaken awake in the middle of the night uh, by my dad. And in the moment, a little annoying, right? If that's ever happened to you. Kind of offensive, maybe? What are you, what are you waking me up for? the middle of the night, until I realized that I was being woken up to the reality that there was a tornado in the area, and he was taking me to safety. But it was only after I was awakened to the reality of my possibly deadly situation that I was able to rejoice in what had been done for me. 
You see that? See, as a Christian, if you wish to truly, with all of your heart, truly worship your Savior, you must truly weep at your sins. Understand the depths and depravity of who you were or, for some of you, who you are as sinful humans. And so that's where we're going this morning. We're, we're talking about weeping and worshiping. Um, and here's the question that I want you guys to be asking yourself as we go through these verses. Is, are these verses something you need to remember or are they something you need to realize? So Paul tells us in just the next paragraph, in Ephesians 2, 12, he says, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. So Paul's challenging the believers here, and I'm challenging the believers here in this room to remember what you were before you knew Christ. Or, as we go through these verses, is this something that you need to realize about yourself for the very first time? Either way you answer that question, it is of eternal significance. If you're a Christian and you need to be sanctified here, that is eternally significant, as is those of you who don't know Christ here this morning. That one's a little bit more obvious. It's, e- it's eternally significant how you answer that question. So let's look at the verses. Look at verse 1, because again, what I have to say does not hold much weight. What God has to say is a lot more important. So look at verse 1, and let's talk about this. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. It could be said that all of the problems of humanity stem from a lack of self-awareness, right? You ever met somebody who lacks self-awareness? We all know them. You have them in your head right now. Don't point at them if they're here. You know who they are. And for me, honestly, it's me. Oftentimes, I lack self-awareness. I remember coming on staff here, and I was quickly labeled as the guy who did not know how to dress well, okay? Uh, I thought I looked good, but clearly I was lacking some self-awareness as to how I looked when I was walking out the door. But that was never, my lack of self-awareness was never more obvious than when myself and a couple other guys on staff went to go teach at a conference I thought I looked good walking out the house that day, right? I had my white shirt, buttoned down, silver pinstripes, thought I was looking pretty good. Until our friend Curtis, who was doing announcements here today, he lovingly came up to me and pointed out that I, I had a coffee stain on my white shirt and a hole in my pants. <laughs> and not a hole in a place that you want to have a hole, I'll just put it that way. In that moment, I was lacking self-awareness of how I truly looked until my friend pointed it out to me. But more urgently, what Paul is trying to tell us here is that we, as sinful humans, as a sinful human race, are lacking so much. We are lacking self-awareness when it comes to how we truly look apart from Christ. And it's like Paul is sitting here with these verses going, I want you to see this. You have to see this. You don't look like you think you look. Paul says, you were dead. 
You are dead in your sins. The moment you stepped out of the bounds of your creator's perfect law, you have trespassed. You've trespassed and committed, as R.C. Sproul would say before he passed, you've committed cosmic treason against the God of the universe. It's a big deal. You've trespassed. Your sin has caused you to miss the mark like an archer trying to hit the bullseye. You've missed the mark of God's perfection. Even with just one sin, you are no longer perfect. You've missed the mark. And as Paul would say in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin, what you rightfully deserve or what you have rightfully earned for your sin is death physical and spiritual. And King David would take it in a step further. He would say in Psalm 51, 5, in sin did my mother conceive me, which means from conception, you've been separated from Christ. And I think probably the most clear in all of Scripture is Romans 8, 7, and 8, where Paul says, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. God's word could not be more clear. Apart from Christ, you are not a spiritually living person capable of doing spiritual good. Paul says you can't please God. It's not possible. You are unable. Apart from Christ, you're not even a spiritually dying person that's desperately trying to grasp onto the goodness of God through your own works with all of your willpower. Paul is crystal clear. God is crystal clear in his word. You are spiritually dead. Your spiritual eyes are blind. They are shut. You do not look at Christ. You do not look at the glory of God and marvel in amazement. Your spiritual heart is hard. When you hear a message or you hear someone talk about the cross, there's nothing that happens inside of you except deadness. You are unresponsive apart from Christ to the gospel into spiritual things. There is no movement in a morgue, right? They're dead. There's nothing going on there. A spiritually dead person is incapable of responding to anything spiritual in their own power. Apart from Christ, we're like spiritual zombies. We are the walking dead in our rotting flesh of rebellion is a stench to the holy God because he's perfect and he's holy. And this, what I just said, being dead in your sins is, is so offensive to humanity. It's so offen- And it's probably offensive to some of you in here because we are so lacking self-awareness when it comes to our own sin. We just don't, we don't see it as a big deal. I would never murder someone, but to lie, eh, what's the big deal? It's a big deal. As Martin Lloyd-Jones would say, 
the least effective times in church history are when Christians have a small view of their sin. But Paul could have just stopped right there, right? He could have just said, and you were dead in your sins, and then jumped right to verse 5 and said, but you were made alive in Christ, right? That's nice and logical, simple, concise. You're dead, you're alive. But he doesn't do that. He goes deeper and darker into human depravity. I think the reason, like I said before, is because he wants us to see our sin and weep at our sin so that we can worship our Savior. He wants us to wrap our minds around, guys, you're not just dead. Let me explain this a little bit further. You're dead, and this is what it looks like. And he gives us three realities of what a spiritually dead person looks like. And here they are. The first one is that a spiritually dead person follows the world. Continuing on in verse 2, they follow the course of the world. And that word course could be translated age. Paul in Galatians 1.4 calls this the present evil age. And what he means, and what he means here in Ephesians, is that everyone... Everyone who is dead in their sins is moving lockstep in the wicked ways of this world. They're, they're joined together and they are marching down the broad road of destruction. And they have been ever since the fall in Genesis 3. But again, this is it's nonsense to the world. You tell the world, hey, by nature you are wicked. By nature, you're, you're evil, and they'll laugh at you. They'll say, that's crazy. Humanity, for the most, there's a couple of bad apples out there, but for the most part, humanity's good. We, we look, as, as humans, we look at Adam, and we say, I would never have taken that fruit. We look at the flood, and we say, I would never have doubted Noah. We look at Lot and say, I would have never lived in Sodom. We look at the Israelites and say, I would have never asked for a king. We look at the Pharisees and we say, I would have never killed the Son of God. Not me. I'm too good. I wouldn't have done it. We look at the Crusades and we say, I would have never killed in the name of Christianity. We look at the Nazis and say, I would never have committed genocide on innocent people. Not me. Christopher Browning wrote a book called Ordinary Men, which is a true story about a group of seemingly normal, ordinary German men. They were your neighbors, they were farmers, they were normal guys. He goes on to tell how when World War II started, they would end up being the catalyst for thousands and thousands of Jews being murdered. And his conclusion, Browning's conclusion in his book is this. I could have been the evader or the killer. Both were human. His conclusion is that humanity, what he's trying to get at is that humanity at its core is not basically good. They are evil. We are evil. We despise the ways of God. 
Apart from Christ, there is not a mix of some good, some decent, and some bad. There are dead people all marching hand in hand, lockstep in opposition to the perfect will of God. And apart from Christ, you and me, apart from Christ, we are no different than Adam in the garden, the Nazi in Germany, or even the Pharisees at the cross. We would have killed Jesus. You would have. You would have picked the fruit. Because spiritually dead people follow the course of the world. Another description Paul gives us is that spiritually dead people follow Satan. He, continuing on in verse 2, he says, they follow the prince of the power of the air. Now, Ephesians, Paul here in Ephesians, uses these demonic terms like principalities and powers Uh, more than he does in any other New Testament writing. And Paul is saying that Satan is the prince. He is the ruler over the demonic spiritual powers that hold sway in this tyranny of darkness, as uh, he would say in Colossians 1.13. And just to wrap your minds around this, wrap your minds around the power that has been handed over to Satan, temporary power, but it is power, handed over to Satan. Let me just list off a few. Satan is the ruler of the demons, Luke eleven fifteen. He is the prince of this world, John twelve thirty one. The whole world lies in his power, first John five nineteen. He is the god of this age, second Corinthians four four. He has the power of death, Hebrews 2.14. He has the ability to go anywhere he wants, Job 1.7. He spiritually devours humans like a lion seeking out prey, 1 Peter 5.8-9. And all authority over the kingdoms of this world have been delivered to him, Luke 4.5-6. So it's interesting, when you, when you talk to somebody, or maybe you're this somebody, When you talk to somebody who has rejected God, they think of themselves as individuals marking out their own path in life. I'm an individual. I've rejected God. I've left the shackles of Christianity behind. I'm doing my own thing. I am an individual. When in reality, apart from Christ, you're not an individual. You're a puppet of Satan being dangled throughout life thinking that you're accomplishing your own plan when you're really not. And listen, Satan's way smarter than us. He's way smarter than us. And if we can manipulate people, we're really good at manipulating people, right? We're pretty good at it. And if we're good at it, imagine what the father of lies, as Jesus himself calls Satan, imagine what he can do to you. He can manipulate you. Make you think you're in control. Make you think you're an individual doing your own thing. Charles Spurgeon said, Satan can make men dance upon the brink of hell as though they were on the verge of heaven. And he continues, Paul continues, that is, the spirit, that is, this demonic spirit of rebellion is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Just think about that for a second. Look at that and think about that for a moment. If you in this room are apart from Christ, it is an eerie and scary thought to think that you are currently under the sway of Satan. Now, you may object. 
at this point, or you may hear someone object at this point and go, okay, well, hold on a second. These are all outside influences, right? The world is against me. Satan's against me. So is it really fair for God to hold me personally accountable? Right? I mean, it's a little bit like when I was a kid, my dad would always drink coffee, and he would give me and my brother sips of coffee before we went to bed and then get upset with us for not falling asleep. And he says I exaggerate all of his stories, but I don't. That one's true. I promise you. But is that what's happening here? Is God going, hey, sorry, I know there's really not much you can do about it. World's against you. Satan's against you. But you're dead. You know, what are you going to do? I don't think so. And the third reality of a spiritually dead person is that they follow their own desires. And this is why I don't think that's the case. Paul says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind. Listen, the life of rejection towards God is not a forced life because of the world or because of the devil. Rather, apart from Christ, this is the life we love. We love this life. Paul says it is our passion to reject God with our bodies. It is our passion to reject God with our minds. This is not a forced rejection. This rejection is premeditated. We've thought about it for quite some time. Jesus says in John 8, 44, you are of your father, the devil. We've talked about that. We got that, right? But what, look, at this, look at this next part. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do the father's, your father's desires. It's your will. The devil didn't make you do it. You passionately desire the same things the devil desires. Apart from Christ, you're not an individual. You're going with the flow. Jesus says elsewhere in John 3 with his conversation with Nicodemus, he says, the light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. Humanity is like a bunch of cockroaches crawling around in their own filth and absolutely loving it. And as soon as Jesus comes in and flips on the light, we don't look at the light and rejoice and say, he's come, our Savior has come, God himself has made his, his home here on earth to save us. We look at him and we hate him, we hate the light with every passionate fiber in our being and like a cockroach, we scurry back into the darkness because we love the darkness. And all of these realities lead to the horrifying description given to the spiritually dead at the end of verse 3. Look at it. And you were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And that word wrath depicts a nose snorting in anger. Can you see that? You, know, you often hear people say, hey, we're all God's children. We're God's children. God is love. Nothing to worry about. You're wrong. Apart from Christ, you are the child of the just 
wrath of God. You know, a couple weeks ago, I got to preach on how when you're in Christ, when you're in Christ, you've been saved, you have received the inheritance of all of the riches of God's eternal reward in heaven. Here, Paul's flipped that on its head completely. He says, when you're apart from Christ, you have inherited all of the just wrath of God's eternal punishment in hell. And these realities, isn't it fun, right? I mean, this is not fun for me to go, hey guys, this is, this is, this is God's word right here. This is a hard word, but oh, we need to hear it. These verses, these words should cause us to weep because when we weep over our sin, we are able to worship our Savior. You see that? We see Jesus for who he is. We see our sin for what it is. We, we recognize, and we recognize our sin for what it is. We recognize Jesus for who he is, right? And that's why we need to talk about these things. And so I challenged you at the beginning. These verses, are they things you need to remember, or are they things you need to realize? If you're a Christian, and these truths in, this, in these verses are things that you need to remember they really should rob you of every prideful bone in your body. You were dead. But remember, as we're going to see next week, God is in the resurrection business, amen? He raises the dead. You were dead, but God you were following the world, but remember what Jesus says in John 15, 19. I chose you out of the world. God has plucked you out from the path you were on, following the ways of this world, straight onto the broad road of destruction. And God says, I'm going to take you, I'm going to reverse course, and you will be walking in another direction. And it's not going to be easy because you'll be swimming against the stream. The world is going to hate you for the way that you're living, but take heart because I have overcome the world, Jesus says. You were following Satan, but remember Romans 16, 20. God will crush Satan under your feet. You were following your desires, but remember Romans 8, 13. By the Spirit... You put to death the deeds of the body. We saw that a couple weeks ago, right? When you have been saved, you have been implanted with the Holy Spirit, and you now have resurrection power. God says, what you were enslaved with, enslaved to the desires of your flesh, passionately pursuing them, God says, no longer I've set you free from that, and I have implanted with you in my spirit, and now you have the power, the resurrection power to kill sin. And you were a child of wrath, but remember, John 1.12, he gave you the right to become children of God. And all God's children said? Amen. Absolutely none of these truths are because we deserve it, right? None of these are because we've done something to deserve these truths. But a Christian, 
what this should result in a Christian's life is humility. Absolute humility. You've done nothing, and God has made you alive. The world should constantly be accusing Christians of being way too humble. A.W. Tozer said, For the Christian, humanity is absolutely indispensable. Without it, there can be no self-knowledge, no repentance, no faith, and no salvation. What about those of you who need to realize, because there are some of you in this room right now who need to realize that you are currently dead. You are currently a child of wrath. Well, you remember the story of Lazarus and the rich man? Lazarus goes to heaven, the rich man is in hell, and the rich man's talking to Abraham. And this is what Abraham responds. This is how Abraham responds to the rich man in hell. He says in Luke 16, 25, Child, remember. Some of you need to realize your need to repent and turn to God before you remember all of eternity that you didn't. And if that's you, and you're saying, I've never, I've never realized, I've never turned, I've never repented, then, then look to these hopeful words from Jesus in John 5, 25, where he says, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here. That's right here, right now. This is the hour that Jesus is talking about. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear it will live. So please, I'm pleading with you, if you're in this room and you hear anything, you feel any sort of movement in your soul, this is God poking and prodding you. This is not just some message. This is the voice of the Son of God saying, don't ignore me. Don't ignore me. Repent, turn, realize your sin, weep over your sin so you can worship your Savior. Look at the cross and live. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are blind apart from you. And you need to open our eyes. Lord, I, I specifically pray for those who do not know you in this room right now, and I pray that if they are feeling any toward a, sort of prodding in their heart, that they would not run away from you, but they would run to you and run to the cross and live. In your son's name, amen.